what people don't get is that it's balance. It's not one or the other. It's not this or that. It's not upper or lower. It's not performance or brand. It's all of it, all the time. And you have to be brilliant and insightful, and you have to be disciplined and driven. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of Nonprofit MMA Global. We have three goals, to change how we think about marketing, to understand the challenges CMOs face, and to unlock the true power that marketing can have. Now, this podcast is not a place for hero worship or how great CMOs are. There's lots of places for that. Instead, we're going to talk about real leadership in marketing and what it takes to drive growth today. Today's guest is Johnny Cahill, the CMO of Heineken USA. He's been with the company since 2018 and oversees the marketing for some of the world's biggest beer brands, including Heineken, Tosekis, and Tecate. He also worked on their alcohol-free beer, Heineken Zero. We'll talk about all of that and also why Johnny believes that live experiences are super underrated. And he's going to give us what should be really the first commandment of marketing. Buy the idea, not the execution. You can find a full transcript of this interview and more at bettercmos.com. And if you like the podcast, do me a favor and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, email me. Seriously, I'm Greg at mmaglobal.com. I'd love to hear from you. But now, let's get to my conversation with Johnny Cahill. Johnny Cahill, great to have you here with us today. Hi, Greg. Nice to see you again. Where are you today? I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, so happy to be on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to meeting in person. I always say, Greg, the upside of meeting the CMO of Heineken is when we meet for a beer, it's technically work, right? So we, we must get that on the books. <laughs> Huh, expensing beer is a life strategy. I had not thought that through before. Okay, good. So obviously from the accent, you're not originally from Connecticut, we're going to guess. I think I, I knew that outside of Dublin. But uh, you've actually had the opportunity. You're, you're probably the most global of all people on the global board that I'm aware of. So what are all the, what are all the cities you've worked in? Yeah, you're right, Greg. Uh, home is Dublin, Ireland. So what a fantastic city to grow up in. Uh, started the career there at Diageo, actually, and had the privilege to work on the Guinness brand, which is from the city. And so, they, you know, for an Irish guy working on Guinness, it's, I guess it was like an Italian working on Ferrari. You know, it's, it's. You never had to pay for anything. You got carried around the streets of Dublin on a carriage of some kind. Right. You were the life of luxury. It had to be. It was a lot of fun, I must say. I, you know, I had the privilege to work in the bedroom of Arthur Guinness's home, where, you know, which was 250 years prior, uh, which puts some pressure on when you're approving a script, uh, when, when the old boss is actually looking down at you. So, <laughs> and, and managed to move from there through Telefonica into Telco, from Diageo to Telefonica, big European Telco. I was yeah. CMO of O2. Did, were, you, were you in Madrid for that then? Were you at headquarters or were you? I was work? still in Dublin for that, okay, actually, Dublin. Okay, yeah, got and it. then joined Heineken. And my first posting was to Moscow, Russia. So I spent almost four years there. An amazing experience. Really loved it. Just to be outside your comfort zone and to have to learn to operate differently. Your playbook goes out the window a little bit and went from there to Amsterdam and then from Amsterdam to here almost five years ago. So, you know, people often say, what's the plan? And I've learned to sort of accept that there probably isn't a plan. You, you go and you do the best you can and something will pop up. And what a brilliant experience to, you know, I feel very privileged to have lived in the United States and in, in Russia. When you see what's going on in the world, to have had the privilege to live in both of these places. I've done a lot of work for the Russians over the years, or at least did in the early days of, of digital. And, um, you know, listen, there's a real cultural difference there that you've got to learn to adjust to. I mean, not everybody looks at the world in the same way. Not everybody acts the same way. It's complicated. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's everything from the climate. I, my first day in Russia was January the 13th, uh, which was a strategic error because it was like, you know, minus 30 degrees when I arrived. Mm. It was a really interesting thing to get to do because the fundamentals of brand building are actually very similar globally, especially when you're on a lucky enough to be on a global brand like Heineken. Yeah. Yeah, really great sort of winding path, I would say, but have felt very lucky to have lived in all these different places. Does brand have the same orientation in Russia and to Russians? It's a universal concept. It doesn't deviate by culture per se, except for the nuance of the culture. Yeah. 
the nuance of the culture changes, but the, if you go, I guess, right back to marketing 101, like what is a brand, right? It's a collection of values that is a shortcut for people. And that's needed arguably in, in more complex environments, even more, because if you take, for example, society there, trust is a big issue in corporations, in government, in, and, and a brand is a great way to communicate to people that you're, you can be trusted. And so actually, the, you know, how it shows up might be different and the tone could be different, but the brand and what brands do for you as a business is crucial. And I think I've worked with many other colleagues in multinationals while we were there, whether it was Pepsi or Coke or Michelin, like the guy from Greenville, South Carolina was my neighbor and he was trying to build a Michelin brand you know, which is about trust and care and, and performance. And those things are exactly the same, whether you were selling Michelin tires in Greenville, South Carolina, or in Ekaterinburg. Yeah. Uh, so it was fascinating to see that. And I yeah. guess that's, as a marketeer, that's, you're always curious, right, about those things. And I guess living in different countries and different cultures mm-hmm. is a very rich experience. Things show up differently, but some things are very fundamental. You know, we might spend a little time with that trust. I think you're right. It's interesting you position that sort of a dynamic as a part of particular Russia. You know, it's funny, I worked a lot with the Walmart people a lot of years ago, and you always see them as sort of everyday savings, right? I mean, they have done an amazing job of communicating that value of their thing. What they told me their biggest issue, though, was trust. And, and you kind of go, oh, of course, like I have to believe that it's everyday savings in order for that promise to really flow through. I hadn't really thought that through, but that was their big challenge. So I guess that's, yeah, I that's can, true universally. I can imagine that as well when they, you know, that's such a compelling proposition. But it's yeah. really, if you think about it logically, it's a very high bar because they've inserted the word every day. So if you fail once, you break the promise. And am I going to go out of my way to fulfill on that pro- that brand promise that they've made? Because that's what they need. They need me to drive an extra some number of miles to be able to participate there versus maybe a closer alternative, which is what they're up against. Right? Yeah. I think you've, you know, when you commit outwardly to something like that, you create expectation. Now that's a good thing, right? So for example, if I take a our most iconic brand, Heineken, you know, when people see it, they expect a certain standard. If they look over at an event or at a, you know, an engagement and see us, there's a certain expectation as how it is going to be. Mm. And that means you have to deliver against that all the time. You see brands like Amex doing that. You see brands like MasterCard trying to do that. It is really about communicating that promise to people and they know it. The beauty of owning or having dominance in a position, in a marketing position, mm-hmm. makes you very compelling. But you better deliver against that yeah. uh, because once you break it, it's broken. You know, if all those aren't safe, there's going to be a problem. No, yeah, yeah. No, then you just, yeah, you set yourself up for failure if you cross that line. I totally get that. Okay, listen. Yeah. So here, you were just speaking about sort of events too. I mean, listen, Heineken's a pretty event-oriented brand. And aren't you in kind of a special season right now at some level? I mean, Formula One's coming up in a couple of different seasons in America. Coachella just finished, uh, depending on when people are listening. Uh, soccer's big right now. You're prepping for US Open tennis. That's right. Where are you? Where aren't you? How do you how do you look at this time of year for you all? Is this the busiest time of year? I don't Yeah, it's the you know what? It's the best time. Time of year. I mean, again, to be the CMO of a beer company and a globally iconic beer brand, I mean, you do pinch yourself. And maybe we'll talk about it later, like how lucky we are to work on these amazing brands. This brand's 150 years old and I just, I get to help it and have a tiny fingerprint on it. But yeah, it's peak season. We just got back from Coachella. Next week is Miami Formula One, which, uh, you know, around the Hard Rock Stadium, cars doing 220 miles an hour, uh, where we bring Heineken Zero very much to the fore, planning for US Open. We've got the New York Islanders, one of our local partnerships here in the tri-state area on playoff duty tonight. It is full on. And so... I guess it's the most fun time of year. Sure, it's busy. You're kind of burning the candle at both ends. Uh, the, the, yeah. the people can't see us. You can see the bags under my eyes right now. Not, uh, maybe everyone can't see <laughs> that. You look good, John. You're okay. You know, again, stop and think, what are we working on at the moment? We just finished Coachella. This morning, we just did the final walkthrough for Miami F1, one of the most iconic events you'll see. We're preparing for the Las Vegas Grand Prix where you're going to see Formula One go down the strip through the city week before Thanksgiving. And it's a crucial part of our strategy as a brand because 
we have that premium positioning. Yeah. And the challenge in a premium position brand is you have to do things that justify the premium positioning and consumers who yeah. we frequently call people, they know what they expect and they know how we should show up. So we're yeah. not in the business of plastering our logo on sports events. We have 90 plus percent spontaneous awareness. I, I don't know who the other people are who don't know us, but they're out there somewhere, but we are in the business of making things better. Right. And that is the philosophical way that we approach events and partnerships is what can we do to make it better? But you mentioned the US Open, Greg, so you pop in there. You know, you we want you to look over, see that red star and know whatever's happening over there, I'm going. Yeah. And so that's again a high bar, but how much fun is that to get to work on those kind of events? It's busy. I've got an amazing sponsorships team who are experts at just delivering it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we say in partnerships and sponsorships, the strategy will get you and the cloakroom will get you. So you have to be clear on what you're doing, but you also have to execute it flawlessly. Uh, and that's a challenge. What does it mean the cloakroom will get? What does that mean? I'm sorry. What does that mean? If the basics don't work, if if the beer is not flowing, if the ice machines aren't working, yeah. if you've nowhere to put your coat, if the air conditioning's wrong, you have a massive strategic imperative with sponsorships and yeah. you have to deliver at a micro level. Yeah. One of the marketing disciplines that's most unforgiving, because if you get if it goes wrong, it goes wrong at scale. Yeah, listen, MMA runs 30 conferences in 14 countries around the world, maybe 15 now, actually. But um, the conferences, events are about getting a thousand things right. And you're lucky if you don't miss half of them. I mean, that is Absolutely. the dynamics. You just, it's just, it's a, it's a million little details that got to go in your way. Hey, Johnny, I want to, I want to get right into kind of some of your thinking here, but I did want to call out one other thing because I'd seen it and you mentioned it. Heineken Zero, that actually has been a pretty big success for you guys. I think I, I think I saw something like a 30% share against non-alcoholic beer. Is that right? That's yeah, amazing. Well, that around a 25% share in, in value terms, an amazing success, a beautiful innovation that's been really accretive to the franchise. So, you know, it's a very simple strategic premise. I mean, from a corporate perspective, if you think through a value maximization lens, we have breweries, we have sales reps, we have a system. But there are millions of moments when you'd love a beer, but you don't want the alcohol. Yep. And that's a different thing. And so Heineken Zero really opens up a huge amount of occasionality. Um, it's a technology in brewing has enabled us to make a really exceptional beverage, a really exceptional beer. The first thing everyone says when they drink Heineken Zero is, oh my God, it tastes like beer. And that wasn't always the case in non-alcoholic beers, particularly in the US. And it's a very underdeveloped category in the United States. It's still less than 1% or around 1% of the beer market. If you go to somewhere like Spain, non-alcoholic beer is 16% of the beer market. So it's an everyday thing. Very underdeveloped here. It's been a remarkable success. It allows us to access occasions and moments that we wouldn't otherwise get to. And it allows us to broaden penetration for the franchise because, you know, you might want a Heineken original on a Friday night and you might want a Heineken zero on a Monday night. So it's been a terrific success for us. Was there any challenge to, or was there any, I mean, I don't know, what was the internal discussion around extending the brand to non-alcoholic? Yeah, it was really, really simple. There's a Heineken family and we knew that the beer is good enough to put the name on the name over the door and our globally iconic brand Heineken original. We simply wouldn't have done Heineken zero if the delivery wasn't good enough, if the beer wasn't good enough. So the conversation was really quick, which is this is an exceptional beer. Our brewers did some real magic and we were actually proud to extend the franchise. We're really proud of what we did. And sometimes we get this question is like, yeah, you do that because you have to. We just ran a Super Bowl ad for Heineken Zero and people ask us, are we serious about non-alcoholic? I mean, we can, I can tell you I'm serious or I can, I can show you what I did with the Super Bowl where we partnered with Marvel and Ant-Man. You know, you probably want a Heineken Zero. You've got to save the world. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be available to save the world. <sighs> Scott, you know the rules. No shrinking and drinking, obviously. And do not give alcohol to the ants, even if they ask. Not a problem, Hank. Alcohol free. 
what was the Super Bowl spot this year? Five million, seven million, something like that. It was a no, in that big, in that ballpark. Yeah, yeah it's, it's and a that's big before you make it, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, so yeah, exactly. So you you know you're making a commitment there. You're right. You're making a commitment. I get that point. Well, our our philosophy is very simple. We are making moderation cool. Yeah, and that is a very important thing to us. We spend 10% of our global media budget on responsible communications in terms of how to drink responsibly. And we are committed to making moderation cool by doing things like partnering with Marvel on Heineken Zero and putting it into the biggest advertising moment in the year. So uh, we're really pleased with how it's gone. It's a, it's a great product. I'll, I'll stick some in the mail for you, Greg. Okay. Okay. Fair. I appreciate that. So you serve currently on the global board of the MMA, and you certainly understand that we're all here about you know trying to unlock power of marketing for marketers in ways that maybe not have been self evident or that they haven't seen themselves, and looking for new opportunities in that. So you know, listen. Given that I'm always kind of on the hunt for where we can do better, let's take a very big question. What do you think that CMOs and marketers they may not fully understand or appreciate. What do you think we're missing in market that we just don't get enough? If there's one single answer to this, I'll be surprised. I think what I'm often struck by is our, as a discipline, we're trying to define a single view of how to successfully add value and build our brands and build our businesses. I see a lot of magnetism and gravitational pull towards lower funnel towards performance marketing. I understand why that, and I feel it every day, why that's an attractive place to go. But I do fundamentally believe that the magic of the discipline is in the balance between the logic, the magic, the science and the joy, the creativity and the discipline. And especially with the kinds of brands I've had the privilege to work on, you need that upper funnel fabulousness, that magnetism, that is the game changer for organizations that can absolutely drive different types of non-incremental growth, step change growth, and you need discipline. So I think my simple answer to your question is what people don't get is that it's balance. It's not one or the other. It's not this or that. It's not upper or lower. It's not performance or brand. It's all of it all the time. And you have to be brilliant and insightful, and you have to be disciplined and driven. And I think when we get that right, we see brands fly. I certainly sense that there's a a stronger gravitational pull because of the performance environments we're in towards the lower funnel. I hope that we protect both. Let's take the big one, the fun one. You know, listen, I worked on a P&G business for years, so very, very brand oriented. So I was steeped in that part of my career. Given that you're tasked to try and either come up with a big idea or a big way to communicate the ideas, the strategy you've already agreed to, how do you really support getting to great work in that regard? Like if you don't deliver against that top one at a really significant level, then you've not really accomplished half of the thesis you've just put forward here. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're you're right. The sequencing is the key because if you don't have the right level of insight, certainly in our business and the brands I've worked on, the, the right level of consumer centricity, insight, and let's call it creative uh, cut through and brilliance, then no amount of efficiency is going to compensate for that. They always say some advertising is better than no advertising and even bad advertising is better than no advertising. But really, we should be trying to do great stuff and do it brilliantly. So we spend, and I've worked also a bit like you in in environments where I have direct access to consumers like in telco. But even then we believed that if you get the creativity and the insightfulness right, everything can flow from that. And then your efficiency that you deliver through discipline and data and being analytically oriented and being good at your lower funnel work Mm -hmm. is actually a catalyst, not a compensatory factor. And I think that really back to your first question is, are we using efficiency and effectiveness to compensate for a lack of creativity and brilliance at the top of the funnel, when actually the way to do it is to have them working together, be brilliant creatively, be very compelling, and then be super efficient and driven about how you get that out there. Okay. So I've worked in agencies. I've worked with, I think, some of the greatest creative minds of their time way back when. It's hard to tell if you got it right when you're sitting in that room. You're in a conference room, you watch the damn ad or the positioning seven, 10 times. You experience all that 
not in any way that a consumer does. Mm. How do you know that you've hit it? How do you know you got it right? Well, the first thing, Greg, and I'll probably deny ever saying this is you don't get it right. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. And any CMO who tells you they're batting a thousand yeah, yeah, is yeah. telling a, a little white lie there. It's a very hard thing to get that. I mean, I've done those meetings and sat in those rooms. So how do you, how do you start? So then how do you get it right the, a but second, third, fourth, a, fifth time? Yeah, what, how do you know? Yeah, yeah. There are ways to to get there. I mean, first you got to surround yourself with great partners, like you say, great creative minds, great agencies. What we try to do is really get the planning right up front. And we have one very simple philosophy, which is we buy ideas, not executions. And too often what happens and what in the room, like you describe, where there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people and you're trying to find it is people get very focused on the execution itself, the script, the board, the story, the tone of voice, the joke, the mm -hmm. humor, the moment, the reveal, whatever, when actually the trick is to buy fundamentally big ideas. Example, you're not yourself when you're hungry by Snickers. Yeah. There are many, many executions of that. That's not important. What's important is that idea is so fundamentally insightful that you can't miss. What are you looking at? I wasn't not looking at anything. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Oh, yeah. Jesus. Supermodels? What are you modeling, gloves? What are you doing? A girl's totally into me. Brad, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So the first trick is to buy and believe in ideas. And once you do that, all the noise dies down because then you're evaluating executions purely through their executional yeah. lens and how well they are representing the idea. So that's a trick or the focus. And that's a mistake is probably strong, but that's an easy thing to get wrong is to focus on what's on front of me, but it's the, yeah. what's the bigger idea. And that's what I try to impart to the people on the teams who are starting their advertising careers. Like don't buy the script, buy the idea because there will be 20 scripts. Can you share, I mean, I don't need to, to reach into your confidential strategy documents here, but uh, what is the idea for Heineken? Well, I'll take Heineken Silver, for example, which we're just launching, right? So the, one of the biggest innovations and launches in US beer investment is north of $100 million. So it's high stake stuff. We have many different deployments, but the core idea is all the taste, no bitter endings. That campaign is just breaking right now. And of course, it nods to a very accessible version of Heineken, something that's very easy to drink, but that still has a lot of taste. So you could say that's a functional descriptor of Heineken Silver. But if you think about it as an idea, we can then play with that in popular culture. If new Heineken Silver was a riveting Viking saga. Family tortured my first wife and stole my second favorite goats. Now you want to marry my daughter. Okay. All the taste, no bitter endings. Crisp and refreshing, Heineken Silver. We can play with that in how we show up in bars. Formula One next week. All of the grid, none of the gridlock. So we're able to have this pivot around the brand idea where basically anything that happens that has a bitter ending, we're kind of against that. And Heineken Silver will bring that to life creatively and in a fun way. Would you like us to rewrite the end of Game of Thrones? Well, we might do that for you because we want a different ending. <laughs> when you get to a core, if you're a Chicago Bears fan, your field goals would go over if your points after would go over if we were there. So we can play with that idea in very simple ways. And that's a test we do. Like, can you do this on a billboard with, you know, in a static environment and in very creative ways as per the TV campaign that's out there at the moment, uh, where a Viking suddenly becomes friendly because we want to end the story differently. And when we see an idea like that from the agency, there is, just to your original question, there is always a moment when your stomach flips and you have that feeling of like, oh my God, that's it.
Okay. And you have to protect that feeling and not ignore it. Yeah. Because so often you think, will my boss like it? Will the CEO like it? Yeah. Will the lawyers approve it? But you have to suspend that at the beginning and say, is that just a brilliant idea? Look at progressive. Yep. You become your parents. It's a very funny idea. Everybody understands that that's true. Yeah. You start to look like them. You start yeah. to behave like them. You turn yeah. into them. It's a true insight. It's a massive idea. And they are able to drive all sorts of different work off that because they bought an idea, not an execution. Okay, we're not going to ask for discounts on floor models, demos, or displays. Shopping malls can be a big trigger for young homeowners turning into their parents. You ever think about the storage operation a place like this must rely on? No. They just sell candles and they're making overhead? You know what kind of fish those are? No. Uh, don't be coy. <laughs> coy fish. One of my favorites is the one that John Costello, who's my uh, my old board chair here at the MMA, did for Duncan, which is America Runs on Duncan. I, I think it's one of the most brilliant ones ever. I, I just, I can't even imagine how you could have done that better than that. I mean, there, it's a brilliant example, right? Because it's so good and so compelling that they can represent that using illustrations. Yes. If you've seen what they do, the map of America, yep. a small running figure and the D. I mean, they don't even have to say it. You look at MasterCard's ownership of price. Priceless. Amazing. Amazing. You know, the bottom line is by the idea. Okay. But Johnny, so listen, so in some regards, and you can take umbrage of the question here, or maybe you don't, I don't know. Let me throw it out there. We'll see. You as CMO are in essence being paid that your intuition at getting at that is better than somebody else's intuition. Because if it's a, I know it when I see it, I know it when I get it. And you've got to, I hear you with a series of qualifiers, but that's a very tricky thing to do. And then, like you said, you're spending tens, not hundreds of millions of dollars against something to validate that in execution. That's tricky. Is there any other way that you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, we do all of the discipline stuff you'd expect, like testing and, you know, link testing and consumer testing and comprehension testing and eye tracking and non-verbal. I mean, It's the combination of using, and the beauty of the discipline is the science has evolved so much that I don't need to ask you if you like the copy because people lie, but I can tell using other behavioral triggers, how you're feeling about things. Are you confused? Are you upset? Are you angry? Are you engaged? Do you think it's funny? How funny? All of those things. So we have beautiful marketing technology solutions in behavioral science and neuroscience even that allow us to test. There is a role for intuition followed by the discipline of checking, testing and understanding. But we shouldn't deny that some of what great CMOs do is they select things. And someone said to me a while back, it must be amazing. You get to pick all this work. And I said, yeah, but really what I get to do is kill a lot of work. You know, it's also about what you don't do and it has to go both ways. So I think it's intuition plus there's a lot of tech in addition to that frisson that runs through you. But if your stomach flips and you're like, whoa, you shouldn't ignore that. Have you had experiences where you've had stuff that your stomach flipped, but the research said no and you went ahead with it anyway? Yeah, of course. And I mean, it goes to your organizational philosophy and and I think also some bravery sometimes that you have to occasionally as a CMO support something, not in a way that's reckless or disregarding of the research, because there will always be clues there. But research is designed to help you make decisions, not to make decisions. And that can be, you know, a trap that's easy to fall into. And it's hard. I can imagine listeners who are maybe more junior in their career or, or coming through their career saying, yeah, that's easy for you to say, like, you've got the stripes. And if you screw up, you know, they'll probably forgive you because you've probably by now done some good stuff. If you believe you've got to protect the work and you've got to protect the idea. And I would say, you know, more CMOs, Greg, than I do. I think bravery is probably one of the characteristics that you see a lot, right? That they're prepared to say, we should do this. Yeah, the older I get, Johnny, Bob Pittman from uh, I, now iHeartMedia said, spoke at one of our events. He says, the only advantage of getting older is pattern recognition. I love that as a thesis. I'm looking forward to being uh, better at recognizing. <laughs> I think it, it's what you've got to try to do is, again, it's back to balance, right? It's some intuition and then lots of data and then make the call. 
But I do agree with you too that I think the other part of that is that you're right. The the older I get, the more courage I have, the more I think it's a, really a sign of leadership. What's the leadership that I push forward based on and somewhat the courage of my convictions? And listen, it doesn't mean I'm going off half crazy or making stuff up. You know, I've sort of checked the touch points. I've sort of evaluated hurt people's brains. But there does come a point in time where you need to make a decision and get going because indecision is deadly. Yeah, indecision is deadly and recklessness isn't okay and casualness isn't okay. Agreed. But intuition is valuable. Everybody has it to a greater or lesser extent. And so it is that balance. And you've got to try, if you believe in something and you can see where it could go, you've got to protect ideas. They're so fragile at the beginning. So fragile. But if you get them and you establish them, they become so liberating and so organizationally galvanizing because everyone can get behind it. And as your business gets more and more competitive, we're scrapping for share and volume growth and performance. If you can orient the organization behind unifying ideas, which are often brand led, yes, you'll see performance. And I think that is the trick. You're trying to protect it. You know, it's interesting you say that too, John, because we've seen this as kind of a side topic, but we've seen that in the marketing org research that we've done, that that getting alignment on the mission of marketing and the marketing department is one of the single greatest drivers of net promoter score within the marketing department. Like, would I recommend this marketing department to somebody else? And it's the first yeah. step to get right. You know, there's not per se, I mean, there's some measurement we can do around that now, but that's not a, that's not a quantitative exercise. That's about no. really making sure that we get all aligned to what we believe to be true in the world that we're going to go take the hill with. Yeah. And even a simple example, if we have a process called mission mapping, which allows us to say, like, what are the crucial things we must do this year? So it's like a, almost a one year battle plan as part of our strategy. We always start with a sort of, if you will, that objective or that philosophical start point. And in our team this year, our mission is wow the consumer. We just want to do stuff that in the end, and we will research it and we will try to prove it. But in the end, you see stuff we do and you think, whoa. What's an example of Wow the Consumer this year? Heineken House at Coachella. Oh, okay. The most iconic music festival probably in the world. And the side stage lineup at Heineken House would blow your mind. It's a beautiful environment. On your Uber ride to Coachella, when you call your Uber, you will see Heineken. It will tell you to go to Heineken House. You can then go there and have a Heineken. You can see amazing music. And as you leave, you'll be prompted to download the Heineken House playlist onto Spotify. So we will get your data. So then we can continue the customer journey conversation. I mean, it's wow the consumer and under the hood, it's wow with the tech and wow. the joined up thinking. Wow. So, I just said I just said it to that myself. <laughs> and that's and that's a brilliant. You know, you could say, wow, the consumer is such an amorphous objective. But how liberating is that if you're a brand VP, you're like, that's not good enough. Yeah. Or that's awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, and it gives you a center. It gives you a North Star that you're aiming for. Okay. John, let's talk about the other side of this. So, you know, as you know, MMA has been doing a lot of research around the brand as performance concept and the balance between those two metrics or thesis is that in some regard, brand needs to be performance, but it's over time and we've not had an ability to measure that. And just so you know, because you, you said something to this earlier, you're right. This dynamic of understanding the optimization between long and short term. Johnny, I talk to at least 100 CMOs a year. There's not one hasn't told me that's an issue with them. It's not a discussion there. Nobody's got an answer. Okay. Let's talk, though, about where the performance side of this thing fits in for a Heineken. How do you look at that practice and exercise? Yeah. I mean, we're looking at it across a few dimensions. Uh, we're it's more difficult for us because we're quite disaggregated in terms of our relationship with our end customers because of the three-tier system in beer. So if you think about how a Heineken gets from me to you in your grocery store, it's from us to a distributor, to a grocer, to your refrigerator. So and we don't often have direct relationships, although we're cultivating them in preparation for cookie this world and, and yep. let's say a first party type future. So there's a few ways we're looking at it. Obviously, in direct channels like e-commerce, which is very underdeveloped in AlkBev generally yep. versus other categories in the US, we're cultivating and checking all of our performance marketing and media around occasions, around message management, around life stage management, and really talking to consumers using MarTech to really 
target moments for maximum opportunity for the business. And so that's a very sort of straightforward selling function, if you will, in an e-commerce vertical. And then we are tracking all of our measures in terms of completion rates, how our advertising is performing, equity scores by various demographics, how the business and how the output of the business is working its way through to the end consumer to really understand how effective is what is typically upper funnel work. How effective is that as we go down through the layers and get closer and closer to the consumer? It's really challenging. Having worked in telco, there are times when I'm really envious of that direct relationship because I know for sure what's happening at each stage and through each targeting initiative. And we struggle a little bit to have that visibility. But for both selling tactics and equity building tactics, we are tracking ranges of metrics that are effectively proxies for performance, sales on one side, but all of the creativity metrics that we have on the other to make sure that what we do is flowing through to the end consumer as efficiently as we can. How do you look at balancing the two? How do you know what that mix should be? I mean, you you don't for sure in terms of the right level, but what we do try to do is to, in our business, because of the premium positioning and because of the relationship we're trying to cultivate, we actually try to close the gap between what you might call brand and performance show up. We don't want them to look that different. Because if we allow ourselves with our positioning to be defined by our lowest common denominator in terms of how we talk to customers and consumers, that's what they'll believe the brand to be. So we don't philosophically start with, is it brand? Is it performance through a creativity lens? We just look at that through a tactics lens, through media buying, through what we do in programmatic, through how we show up at events, through how we conquest data with consumers, how we work with loyalty programs with customers. They are the tactics for us that we focus on for the lower funnel. But from a creativity and positioning perspective, we try not to delineate because we want absolute consistency of brand, DNA, tonality, and feeling through the funnel. How do you not get caught up in having to try to do everything? I kind of get that sense from talking to marketers. They just, they are, there's so much opportunity today. There's so many channels. The business has changed dramatically, right? Yeah, it's that is really tough. And we spent so, I mean, you look to how the media mix has changed, for example. Dramatically. Right? And then you're enabled by having MarTech solutions. You're, you know, we have an in-house studio that uses DCO. So theoretically, we can deliver infinite amounts of creativity. And yet one of my biggest worries is fragmentation of positioning. So I love DCO and it terrifies me because I want us to be quite single-minded. I want us to be very targeted and customized, but at the same time, I don't want our equity to fragment. Right. So we're quite choiceful. We try to be quite choiceful about what we will do and equally choiceful about openly saying in our teams, here's a thing we could do, but we're not doing. Right. And we try to celebrate those choices and not just chase what's next. You can get as you say, pulled in 15 different directions. And that is in a way why that marketing vision and that objective is very important, that North Star you spoke about, because that allows you to say, I could do this, but I'm not going to, because it's not in service of where we're headed or it's not consistent with what we stand for. We try to use all the MarTech. Uh, We try to be incredibly efficient, but we try to be very precious about the brand. Right. But it's complicated for a business like like a Heineken. You don't have to talk about yours specifically, but it's complicated because, you know, should you be developing a loyalty program? Should you be trying to extend personal relationships to consumers? Because that's a huge time investment versus creating better ads because you sit at a distance. How do you try to make that decision and allocation of time, energy, effort, resources? I think we go to what are we uniquely brilliant at? And, and you have to look at what is it that you are specifically built to do as an organization. So our biggest loyalty program in a world where we're disaggregated from consumers is brand equity. Mm. There's a reason that people spend five bucks more or three bucks more on a 12 pack of Heineken versus the millions of choices they have because they know it's worth it. And so it's not that we don't see loyalty programs as exclusively being the click stamp rebate 
Yes. Of course, we do that stuff too, because everybody needs a deal from time to time. But we believe equity is also one of the primary drivers of loyalty. We believe in broad breach and penetration philosophically, yeah. but we also believe in equity. Boy, that's still, that's still, it's a, t- it's, I mean, it really just kind of goes to how hard marketing has become today, doesn't it? Yeah. I always wonder, you know, if, because you talk to people and CMOs in different types of business. So, I, you know, there's days when I think, God, I am envious of AT&T or Verizon, that, that absolute ability to really as I perceive it, uh, having been in that world, to really have that direct conversation, lifestyle, life cycle management, change the conversation, absolute clarity on you know how everything's working in the machine. And I can imagine they look at a brand and a business like ours and think, God, that must be beautiful. You're, you kind of have a more balanced, more amorphous collection of different marketing techniques in order to do the same thing, but it's much blurrier. They're both fun to do, but it is a different model versus, say, a direct response business or, a, you know, a D2C business. Right. It, sometimes it's very frustrating. I'd love to know more, but you get comfortable and then you have to retrench to this is what we believe and this is how we believe you grow the brands. And it's working for us all over the world. Uh, Heineken's the fastest growing international premium beer brand in the world. Something in this system is working. It's not that we don't do the other stuff, but something in there works. To what degree are you paying attention to daily, weekly, or monthly sales trends and then being reactive and responsive to those? Despite the previous answer, are we looking at daily sales? For sure. Absolutely. Uh, And weekly and monthly and quarterly and MAT. And you're looking for all of those trends all of the time. And then how reactive do you have to be to those? Or do you say, hey, guys, we have a longer term strategy here. We're going to stretch it out. Or I I don't know. I don't know how companies. Yeah, no, you you, No, you've got to be very reactive with your customers to the sales data. Things like pricing, for example, which is really important in our category to make sure we remain premium but accessible to people as they trade up into beer we are seeing the market data and responding to that we we don't set pricing but it is obviously something that's important as a premium brand you know we're not selling champagne and rolexes we're selling an everyday luxury right you see things like you know grow in a recession lipstick uh nail polish premium chocolate ice cream beer we need to stay competitive not out of reach we obviously track on a daily basis how the sales numbers perform and we react accordingly with all of the tactics you'd see in in any cpg organization to try and Mm -hmm. uh, improve performance and drive those volumes or compensate if things are slow and there are natural moments of course in the in the cadence of our business dry january for heineken zero is a great example it makes total sense dos equis is in college football you know very big brand in texas and the sun belt saturdays are really important so you'll see a lot of our activation pointed towards those key moments so we are all over the long-term strategy and all over the daily sales. And I think almost everybody in the business is, has that dichotomy. Let's just talk a little bit about sort of the career side of operating at a C-suite executive. And so, you know, I'd made the statement to you earlier that I don't know that everybody really appreciates how hard it is to continue to perform at the tops of some of these big companies and the challenges that kind of go with that. And you then took and sort of amplified that by changing cultures. So I don't know, maybe, maybe start with a little bit like, you know, what were the challenges of coming to America and learning an American culture versus where you'd been before? The U.S. transition, like any transition to a new culture, you, you immediately assume you know things and, and you very quickly realize you, you have to adjust to it. I think good marketeers are inherently curious and usually quite empathetic in the sense that they're looking at the world thinking not what's happening, but why is it happening? I hope I have my eyes open and I'm I'm an empathetic leader and actually empathetic human being. I think when you come to a new culture, you have to lead with humility. You have to seek empathy and try to be kind. Um, I have a very deeply held personal philosophy, which is performance and kindness aren't mutually exclusive. I think you can perform at a high level and be a fundamentally kind person. I try to be. I'm not sure I always succeed. So in the transition to the US, I found it an environment that was incredibly open. People really want to work with you. There is a real openness to learn. As a marketeer, 
let's be honest, Greg, I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. I'd been to Russia, et cetera. You know, as a CMO, this is the major leagues. Like this is where you want to be. So I was really humbled to be here. And every day I wake up, I think I get to do this here. It is the home of the discipline. And I feel very fortunate to have chosen to be in marketing. I studied it in college, wanted to do it, got to do it, and turned out to be kind of okay at it. And now I get to do it in in the US. And that's what gives me sort of huge joy because this is where it's at for what we do. But I think transitioning cultures, you've just got to stay humble, keep your ears open, deeply look at what's going on. And you need to fit in with the culture. Not the other way around. So, Johnny, it sounds like you know, in some regards, you kind of had a series of built-in attitudes, perspectives that have helped you to succeed in these big companies. I can hear how you've kind of approached that, which I, I think is actually very interesting and powerful. Were you raised with that kind of thing? Did it just come natural for you? Did you, you have a coach that helped you get there, a great CEO? I don't know. How'd you get great at that? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, you know, I sometimes try to think about my like what my grandma say if she saw me in a meeting or with an agency or or in work. Would you be proud of your behavior if people saw it? Are you very different as a person and as a business person? Because they shouldn't really be different things. Wouldn't it be great to be yourself? I would hope, like if I had one dream, I would hope that people who know me through my professional career have a similar experience to people who know me privately and and personally. Like I don't turn on Johnny Cale for work. I just bring him to work and we try and do the best we can. So from that perspective, I think, yeah, you're just trying to have empathy, take care of people. And I think there's a very simple thing at the root of marketing is you're getting to do stuff that in many cases brings a lot of benefit or joy or usefulness to people. But it's also an enjoyable business to be in. So I try to remind myself how lucky I am to do this for a living because there are real jobs out there that are really hard. Yeah. So I think it's probably making sure there isn't an enormous gap between who you are as a professional and who you are as a person. I think when you fall into that trap of trying to manage vastly different personas, you lose empathy, you lose authenticity, you lose connection. Mm hmm. You're managing your brand and I'm trying to manage, in this case, Heineken's brand or Dozeki's brand rather than my own. Was there any pressure when you were younger, for for example, earlier in your, to, uh, to sort of rise to this level of you know global corporations? Was that always your expectation or? Not at all. I <laughs> think uh, I remember thinking I'd like to do that. And I was fascinated. I, my first lecture was on premium pricing and I, my head exploded. I thought this is amazing. Like your first lecture, like within college, that was your first yeah, education college, experience you remember. I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, not my parents when I was- What a funny thing. Yeah, yeah, they weren't teaching you as a toddler. My I understand. dad when I was four, yeah. What a very funny thing that you even remember that as sort of a topic. That's funny. Yeah, and I was like, wow, you get people to pay more because of how you show up. And my, I was fascinated. No, no pressure at all, you know, to tell a very personal anecdote. I mean, when I was appointed in this role, which, you know, was a big seat and I'm very, I was very proud, of course. And, you, you know, your your mom is proud and your, your friends are proud. My three best friends, um, the WhatsApp group exploded. And of course, because they're my best friends, the first thing they said is, one, you're way out of your depth. Two, you won't last six months. Three, I'm looking forward to watching this. <laughs> Thanks for the support, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was their way of saying, you know what, if I translate that, that was my best oldest friend saying, we're, we're really proud of you. Yeah. But you know what? I think you have to remember how lucky we are to have yeah. these seats, yeah. really. And yeah, there are Tuesdays when it's budget day and you have to do some tough stuff. I think you do mention one thing, which, you know, you don't get given the seat. You do have to do the work. You have to go to places. And, and sometimes you do tough things. You've got to do those things with humility and, and respect and then try and do fabulous things with the brands that you're lucky enough to own. And recognize that I've worked on Guinness, I've worked on Heineken, 200 and 150 years old, respectively. My fingerprints are only on these brands for a millisecond in the big picture. And all you can try to do, Greg, is make them a little bit better than when you got them. And I think if you keep it simple like that, it's it's easy. 
John, I love one of your earlier points here too. You mentioned about gratitude and and where you are. You know, somebody had said to me early on in my life, they said it's very hard to be grateful and depressed at the same time. What that was aiming me for was that if I stick with an attitude of gratitude, then everything's fine. I really hear that from you. Mm. Yeah, I think I feel fortunate. I feel lucky, basically, because you professionally get to do something that's enjoyable. I wanted to do it. Someone said about exercise the other week, it was a, I heard this and it fascinated me. He said, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. <laughs> and I was procrastinating about getting on the bike. And the point they were making was like, if, if you have to work 20 hours a day to feed the, the family, you don't have time to exercise. So you should look for the joy and stuff. This is the job I wanted to do, I guess, and yeah. I get to do it. And I've got to do it in different places with different teams, I have friends all over the world. And I really feel fortunate to have gotten to do it on very iconic brands. You know, I think you're talking to Linda soon and, you know, something yeah. like Campbell's, right? You just look at that and you think, wow, wow, it's cool. <laughs> right, exactly. And she probably thinks, oh, I'd love to do beer and I wouldn't <laughs> want to do soup. I would do it tomorrow, you know? So we should job swap. <laughs> okay, I'll see if that's available. You can tell her I said that. So it's, yeah, I mean, to get to play with these brands, and I don't mean that in a flippant or casual way, yeah. but like yeah, how right. much fun is this? Uh, so, yeah, I feel very lucky. John, it sounds like you have the greatest job. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Coachella last week? Uh, Miami uh, Formula One coming up, Las Vegas Formula One, the U.S. Open. I, I don't know. I'm jealous. So I think, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah but, I need to. Know, not uh, everybody has the right attitude, even when they have the attributes like that. So good for you. I, I mean, hear really. people, Greg, I actually hear sometimes people say, oh, you know, it's, there's a lot of travel, you know. It's like, hang on, we're we're gonna we're gonna Coachella, we're gonna see the dolphins, we're going to the islander. Like, yeah, that is a great thing. <laughs> hey, look, there's there's lots of wet Tuesday afternoons when you're looking at an Excel spreadsheet about performance or budgets or you know, of course they're yeah. But you know, you gotta I think everyone's doing those things. Yeah. And and everyone yeah. in every business is doing those things. And so I think you got to accept that there's lots of stuff you got to do. It's just the job and you get so much more as a result. And it's just the attitude you have towards it. I mean, listen, I, there's a, been a little bit of a political fight, I guess, going on, you know, around the MMA here and some stuff that's happening recently. And people are like, oh, geez, I'm sorry you have to go through that. And I go, I don't know. It's interesting. You know, it's, it's dynamic. It's moving. I don't really know where it's going to end up. It, you know, we're trying to make a lot of our best decisions in the face of otherwise unclear information and maybe some overly ratcheted emotional reaction by some people. But you know, like I, I get to play the game. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I like to play the game. Yeah. And you said something very interesting in there, which is I'm trying to make the best decision. Yes. And I think that that's oh. a very simple, but a very liberating thought, yes. which is I'm trying my best and I hope it's good enough. And so far yes. it's been okay. It has I've been, been very the, fortunate. The, the evidence suggests it has been right. But I'm trying as hard as I can. And that's all I've got. You know, you can say, oh, well, what about the stakeholders and the politics and the what's the what will fly and what's the right decision? You try. I think people know if you're putting your soul into it, you're trying your best. Of course, you're bringing your experience and, and intelligence and thoughtfulness to the table. You can't be reckless and you can't be casual. But it, that's the only thing I control. I'm always fascinated by elite sports people who say, I don't really focus on winning or losing. I focus on doing it the best I can, and then there will be an outcome. Yeah. Because that's the bit you control, right? You you don't control winning or losing. You can score, yeah. the Islanders can score, you know, Matt Barzal can score five times tonight and still lose. He can be proud, he might be disappointed, right. but he can't control whether he wins or loses. He can control how he plays. But, and I think that's probably a nice guiding light where you say, and I think people see that. They're like, yeah. okay, the, yeah. he cares. He's trying. He has some experience and cares. And when you get to the top of some of these organizations too, if I can liken it to, you know, I, I love running a trade association because I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the business. And I've often said, if I listen carefully, they will give me the answer. I will hear the truth of what needs to be done because I have the smartest people around me to help figure things out. I love that idea. And you've yeah, got that in the top of any one of these big companies. There's some really smart people involved in these organizations, obviously. 
Absolutely. I mean, the people you've had the privilege to sit beside and sometimes be scared by because you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm not in that same zip code. As- I like the ones who scare me a little bit sometimes. Absolutely. I go with that, yeah. I also think, you know, your bosses make a big difference on the journey. I've been totally. really fortunate. Yeah, of course, I've, I hope held up my end of the bargain. I've had amazing, amazing bosses who have championed me and pushed me and kicked me around a bit sometimes, deservedly. I've got an amazing sort of list of people I've gotten to work with. So yeah. I think that helps. Yeah. Um, but I get to sit in rooms with people who are seriously brilliant and yeah. uh, that's that's a very nice place to be too yeah. if not a little intimidating sometimes when you know you're definitely not the smartest guy in the room yeah i don't sit with the smartest guy i had somebody say to me one time they go it's not it's not about being smart anymore it's about getting to the better answers all the time at this point so you know yeah you know, and looking and left and right time. you know yeah. also allowing people I think in marketing sometimes as well, we're a little bit precious. And if the idea or the push comes from the supply chain VP or or from finance, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, we're just trying to get good stuff done. Probably all of us can sometimes be a little bit precious around our, our discipline, you know, our own toys. We like to play with our own toys. It's hard when you're supporting sort of ideas in the way that you talked about earlier. So I get that. Maybe not everybody else sees the same way. Okay, let's, let's do a couple of sort of wrap up questions here, as I always like to do with people. So who do you most admire out there? You want to either pick a brand or maybe another CMO, just somebody in your life that you thought, oh, wow, really phenomenal. Nobody at the current, you can't pick your boss. You, got, you can't do your- No, I can't pick my boss. Okay. Well, for the record, my boss is amazing. And yeah, uh, I, I, I got that talking to you earlier. I totally heard that. Yeah, about no worries. Her. Yeah. You know, I, I spend so much, because of course I'm a marketing junkie, right? I, I can't yeah. help myself watching and seeing what everyone else is doing. I have to say, I think what Raja is doing at MasterCard, mm. very, very interesting because I see it as a true 360. Like they are brand building at every conceivable touch point. And it's very consistent. It's very iconic. They're very innovative things like sonic and visual identity, all of those things that they're doing, they activate in old school ways brilliantly, mm-hmm. something like golf. They mm-hmm. activate and bring the brand to life in new verticals, in new media. They're very disciplined. I, I think it's a beautiful brand that's in a remarkable transition. Yeah, And I'm fascinated by the positioning because it would be, what I love and admire is it would be so easy in that business to default to what you do. And they're trying to change from what they used to be, a credit card, into a completely different, you know, into effectively a lifestyle platform. And they're so clear on what their emotional benefit and space is when it would be so easy to default back into the weeds. I find that very inspirational. Could have just been a utility. Yeah. Listen, I think a lot of us have a lot of admiration for what Raj is doing over there. So got it. Okay. What's most overhyped in marketing today? What do you think? We're, you know, we're just, we're just overdone. Ooh. People like it too much. You're just not sure it's really there. I think what's overhyped is the ability to systemically target consumers with accuracy that's being overstated. Mm. We're not as good as we think we are in terms of targeting. We're not as good yeah. as we think we are. I and I still have yeah. that moment when... I look at opportunities with different CPMs and and different profiles, and I'm not sure the message delivery in terms of the targeting is is really flowing through. And so one of the debates we often have, and I'm sure everybody has it, is what is the role for broad reach, broad demo? Let's call it inverted commas, old-fashioned targeting. And we keep getting sold a dream on hyper-targeted, hyper-effectiveness. Yeah. I don't see it flowing through all the time. And I'd love to have an honest conversation about how good it is. I think that's that's a place to go. What keeps me up at night is, you know, where we're all going to have to go as consumer marketeers in a cookie-less world with different types of relationships if you're in a non-direct business. So again, not an issue if I'm in AT&T, but it's an issue for us. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Okay. And what do you think is most underappreciated marketing? I still believe real life in inverted commas experiences. I think you can build a lifetime of loyalty by fabulous interactions in the real world with real people. And and one of the reasons I believe that so deeply, because you probably hear a bit of passion there is I have a Heineken credit card. So I can go into a bar and I can buy people a beer. Now that's a 
$7, $6, depends where you are, right? Yeah. You would not believe what happens when our team go into a bar and buy people a few beers. <laughs> because we live as CMOs in this world of perfection and, and a very elevated status. And But most people never get a free Snickers or a free beer or yeah. a free scoop of ice cream. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very micro example. So well, yeah, when you do something like Coachella or the US Open or F1, of course, you, you leave a mark for life. But I'm still amazed by the simplicity with which giving people a great experience, even a micro experience, can have them loving your brand forever. Wow. Uh, and I still believe in that. So yeah, you, uh, I mean, you should see my T&E. <laughs> so Johnny, this is funny. Here's my take. Go for it. I think everybody either wants your job or they want to work for you or they want to be you, my friend. I think that's what we just discovered at the time we've just spent together here. So take that as the highest of compliment. <laughs> they might want my job because of the free beer. <laughs> well, okay. The, that, that maybe, maybe, because it's so hard to be a C-suite executive. But <laughs> that, that's it for sure. I think the, the <laughs> folks who help me every day and who work with me might say, you know, you, you've had me here for 40 minutes. I'm maybe fabulously charming, but I become grating after a while. So perhaps. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Well, let's not ask the family. I got it. I understand. Johnny, you're great. I can't thank you enough for doing this i i audience is going to be totally appreciative so thank you very much you're very welcome greg no problem happy to be here thanks again to johnny cahill from heineken usa for coming on building better cmos check the show notes for links to connect with johnny and if you want to know more about mma's work to truly unlock the power of marketing please visit mmaglobal.com or you could attend any of the 30 conferences that mma operates in in 15 different countries or feel free to just write me greg at MMAglobal.com. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMOs Researcher is Anita Pawlowski. Artwork is by Jason Chase, and special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.